0: In this edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen, we look at savings. What good are savings? Do we really want people to save rather than spend? And what happens to money when we do save it? That's coming up on today's edition. Now, in the early 80s, 10% or more of all our household resources went into savings. The rest obviously went on food, housing, holidays. Since then, we've spent a lot more, a lot more on housing, a much lower proportion on food and drink, even though we're fatter, uh, but we're, we're just spending more generally, and savings has almost completely been wiped out, and why wouldn't it? I mean, interest rates are negligible, it's not really worth saving, and a recent survey has shown that one in four adults in the UK have no savings whatsoever. So, it's a mind shift, isn't it, Steve, for, for our nest eggs uh, that we used to have, uh, which we used to save up for, uh, like our parents taught us, to now borrowing to invest or simply trying to pay off our excessive mortgages faster. And no wonder we're not saving any more.
1: So, should we be concerned or doesn't it really matter? Yes, we should, but for entirely opposite reasons to the usual worries, which are the ones you have just expressed. Because if you look at the, the – the whole thing comes down to what are savings – and there's two elements of that. One is, which we'll talk about later, is the, me- uh, the mechanics of what actually happens when you save money uh, as an individual in a monetary system. But the other is how are savings defined in the national accounts? Yeah. And the way savings is defined is the gap between income and expenditure, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. But what do they include in expenditure? They do not include paying your mortgage. Right. Okay, and, and I guess on, on the
0: income side as well, they they, they mm-hmm. probably are not counting what you've uh, uh, you've you've taken off to contribute to your pension because that's sort of like your your you know your your pre tax uh, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. amount. So you're reducing your income to to invest really.
1: Yeah, but that's that's the other side of it. But what you have is money you use to service your debt, and certainly money you use to pay it down doesn't turn up in your costs. Mm. I'm not sure about the interest payments. so I'd better clarify that. I'm certain about money you use to repay the debt you've got. So you, you're servicing your debt, um, then that does not that 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 is that is not counted in your in your expenditure, that's not consumption. Uh, I think also the interest payments on housing are not counted as part of consumption. So what do you find is that what is defined as savings, a large part of it is actually what you do to service your financial obligations. Now because the level of debt just say in the UK, for example, has trebled uh, since Maggie Thatcher and was almost quadrupled at one point, uh, then you've got higher servicing costs Uh, which means what appears as savings itself is being eroded, uh, it, it isn't really savings, it's, it's servicing the financial sector. Mm. So the, it, 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 it's, if you ask people, do you want to save money? Most people would say yes. If you want to say, do you want to service the financial sector? Most people would say no. Well, unfortunately, the term of savings includes both. Right. Um, then the other side of it is, as you mentioned yourself, uh, the increasing cost of housing, but also the increasing cost of utilities. Now, um, that's the, the first one, again, is caused by the, by the, the financial sector itself, the Trebling and quadrupling of debt in the last uh, thirty or forty years has driven up the cost of housing. Whether you're renting less, less if you're renting than if you're owning, which of course, you're owning, costs as an owner have, have, have you know, escalated dramatically, and the um, the the problem. Of, of utilities is a special one because, of course, what we now have, if you go back 40 years and say, what were you spending on utilities as you've done? It was substantially lower spending now. What has happened across that time? We've privatised huge slabs of them. Mm. And this is supposed to reduce their costs. What's happened? The cost has gone up. Uh, because it was a you know a, a textbook model of how the costs would change, uh, which ignores, for example, the cost of marketing, which of course doesn't exist when you have a, a state monopoly, but is a major expenditure when you break it down to a bunch of privatised competitors.
0: But when we look at you know how much you know everything is costing us, we, we then get back into that conventional argument, don't we, about what is saving? Savings is basically what you've got left over when you've uh, when you've paid for everything that you uh, you know you've you've earned in income. But I wonder how much of it really is this? This shift is just you know as we start to discuss a, a change in, in in definition because is there what is the the difference between savings and investment for example as I said if I take money out of my uh, pay packet for a pension fund isn't that exactly the same as putting money into a savings account except uh, you know I'm putting it into shares rather than sticking it in the bank um, you know I'm probably going to get better returns and, and in government figures I've probably got a lower income from doing that because the money's been taken off to to invest so it's not being taxed but I get more assets. I'm not getting savings, but I'm getting mm. more assets, and I
1: probably feel better off as a result of that. Well, there's this, this, this quite a bit of complicated issues there because, again, we think about the, the way mainstream economists think about investment and savings. They think savings comes first. You've got to save to invest. Mm. And actually, the way in conventional neoclassical thought and certainly in the, the old classical, um, well, class, some of the classical school writers, but certainly, say, Jean-Baptiste, say, who was a proto-neoclassical, um, the idea was that whatever you save is necessarily put aside for future investment.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, we don't do so that, that now.
1: We borrow to invest. We do well, the Exactly. Exact and this, this, this is what when Keynes, Keynes, when he wrote the general theory, I said there were three sources of demand for money. It was precautionary demand, um, <clears throat> speculative demand, and transactions demand. And the, neo, the neoclassical model was exclusively focused upon transactions demanded, didn't look at a, at the other two. So that was what Keynes saw as a major in innovation. And he also argued that investment causes savings. So if you, mm. if you look at how it's defined in the national accounts, on the production side you'll say uh, GDP or you know, GDP is consumption goods produced plus investment goods produced. And then on the expenditure side you'll say you know, expenditure measure of GDP is purchasing consumption goods plus purchasing of investment goods. Well, what you've got in the C's being identical, uh, what what you produce is what you sell uh, in terms of consumer goods, then therefore you get an equality of savings to investment. And this has been a major part of macroeconomics, whether it's mainstream or non-mainstream. And I'm actually pissed off with it because I think it's a major source of confusion. Mm. Um, But what Keynes realised in '37. I mean, I think it was a paper called the the um, the gen- um alternative theories of the rate of interest, and in that is either that paper or the General Theory of Employment. Which, by the way, anybody who hasn't read Keynes, I would not recommend reading the General Theory of Interest uh, Interest. Uh, what's it called? Employment, Interest, and Money. I wouldn't recommend reading the book. I'd recommend reading the paper, just called the General Theory of Employment, which is written in thirty-seven. It's fifteen pages long. You can find it for free Easy. on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's much, much better. Now, in, in this there's three papers Keynes wrote in 37, and in the main they were responding to critiques of, of the general theory by his mainstream uh, rivals. Of course, at this stage, they were pretty much in uh, disarray because of the length of the Great Depression, uh, the Roosevelt Recession, which had begun in America as well. The people like Patinkin came back at Keynes from a classical, a neoclassical point of view. Keynes called it classical. We would call it neoclassical today. And... In that debate, Keynes realised that he'd left out the financing of investment, and he said, "There's a fourth demand of for money which I now think, quote unquote, should have included in the general theory, uh, and that is the finance demand. It may, we said, it may well be that the finance demand for money precedes investment, and the investment generates the savings. Mm. So this, yeah. this is the major hook that that um, that Minsky uh, drove his theories forward on. So by leaving out the finance demand for money you you leave out what actually causes investment well I and mean, isn't, isn't that
0: yeah. clearly what is happening now because the incentive is there so so because if you save if you save your money and put it in the bank and then you invest it then when you're saving it uh, you're getting very low interest rates so you've you've also you know got the uh, the question which has become uh, you know more of a concern over the last ten years that your money is sitting in the bank if you're borrowing and investing, then it's the bank's money uh, which is at risk, not your money, and you you know you probably feel a bit happier about that.
1: Well, this is another trick, and this is this is a, another one of the areas that um, my the accounting approach I'm now taking to the foundations of the way I think about the monetary economy uh, is, is essential, and and that is that. When you look at the aggregate of an economy, let's—I'm going to make the, the start with a fiction of a, of a pure credit economy, so economy with no government, no government money. This the sort of the, what you might call the um, libertarian wet dream. Yeah? Okay, <laughs> government government doesn't exist. Mm. Uh, all banks are private, uh, and then all money is created by private banks. And, and, and that's the, the, the real libertarian wet dream, of course, is that money is gold. We all go out and dig up. We, we go out to uh, the Californian fields and dig up our slab of gold or, or, or that sort of thing, so the commodity money. I'm not going to have quite that uh, loony right, uh, but I'll stick with the loony right that argues we should just have totally private banks and no, and no government money creation. Well, in that world, it, 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 we're talking about financial assets. The law of accounting applies, and that is that assets minus your liabilities equals either what you call your capital or your equity. I prefer to call it your equity. So assets minus liabilities equals equity. Now, to become a bank, you have to have positive equity. You have to raise capital in the first instance. Let's say you raise, you know, a billion a billion pounds. You've got to raise that money and then you can be become a bank. Now, of course, at the moment we talk about licensing the bank, let's just imagine that doesn't happen either. Mm. So you've got to raise that billion in the first instance. Because you therefore have assets of a billion, and you start with if you imagine starting out as a bank, you have assets of a billion, uh, you have no liabilities because you haven't borrowed any money nor have you lent any money, so you don't have any depositors uh, whose accounts are your liabilities. Your assets minus your liabilities equal equity, which is one billion. Now, when you look at the rest of the just take that bank in isolation and look at the rest of the Planetary financial system, because one person's asset, whether it's an entity or a or a bank, what doesn't doesn't matter in this instance. Uh, one person's asset is another person's liability. The sum of the equity for the rest of the planet is precisely one billion negative one billion. Mm. Okay, so if you look at the banking sector in general and in a, a pure uh, credit economy, then the banking sector must maintain positive equity. Therefore, the non-banking sector must have negative equity. Mm. Okay. Now, what that means is, if you, we don't actually con- so consciously do this, but this, this is what's actually going on, because we each individually have a desire to have positive equity financially, we want to have more assets than liabilities. We try to do it by financial speculation. Yeah. Now, we assume that those assets yeah. are going to go up in value. Yeah, that's right. Well, then how we then, 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 then imagine you have got two columns in your in your well, two columns in your levels of assets. One is the cash you hold, whether that's in a bank account or physical cash, Uh, and and the next column is your ownership of assets. Now, how do you price those assets? You price them by the price the last asset sold for times the entire stock of assets that exist. This is the fallacy. That lets us pretend we're in positive equity when there's an asset bubble.
0: But if going. we have, but if we have growth, even economy is growing, then won't we see and populations are growing as well? I guess, which is a you know discussion for another day. We're going to do that next time. But let's let's assume mm-hmm. static population. But if we've got growth, then assets will increase in value, won't they?
1: Yeah, assets. Well, this, this is the trouble. Assets. Assets. Uh, it, it, assets will increase in price when there's debt financing the value of. It. Yeah, yeah. The, the circularity that I want. Right. You know, so well, to,
0: to, that's it. onto a good thing. Then everyone wins. That's what we set out to achieve. Rather than yeah, the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what could possibly go wrong?
1: Well, this is the trouble. We're happy for the for, for delusional reasons <laughs> mm. because we we think what what we do is we 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 as I said, we start from a position of negative equity. When you're working in a pure credit world, uh, we have. Uh, the banks having positive equity, the rest of us have to have negative equity. Now, we don't like that. So, what do we do? We go on to the banks and we borrow money from them to go and buy assets. And when you buy the assets, you drive up the price of those assets. And that's yeah. something I've covered, we've covered in previous podcasts, and I'll be hopefully publishing a paper on it later on this year with some empirical proof of that using at least American data. But the, what, what lets us believe we have positive equity through an asset bubble is that what, what we do as a common practice is we work out the value of those assets and record them in our little double-entry bookkeeping as, you know, the asset alongside the cash we've actually got. Uh, so we, to borrow money, our cash goes down. Uh, we we've, we've, we'll borrow money from the bank to, um, you know, we'll put a deposit to go and buy a property somewhere. Um, we value the assets at the price they're selling for times the entire stock, outstanding stock of assets. Mm. Now, what if, we, if we all tried to sell at that price, the price would collapse yeah it'd be like and, a, a bank run yeah. for assets in effect yeah yeah bank run for assets would definitely happen now what we what we instead do on a normal basis is we sell between two and ten percent this is sort of extremes between two and ten percent of existing houses turnover every year now if we value them at the if we value the total value of assets on our books at that level of the two to five, two to ten percent that sell, we get a far lower valuation for our assets. We wouldn't be fooling ourselves to believe the impossible that we can all be in positive equity. Uh, but that's a given illustration. But imagine, let's say there's ten million homes in the UK, and the average price of those that sell, the, the two to ten percent that sell, is two hundred thousand pounds. Then you get them. You get two million, million pounds as the valuation of the housing stock. And we all think, woohoo, we're copying if you, if you If you look at all the, the people who've got houses and you add up the equity they've got and add to the negative equity of those that don't and so on, bang, you come up with a positive equity situation for the non-bank sector mm. and a positive equity situation for the banks as well. Whoopie doo, we're all happy. However, I said, if we tried to liquidate that value, the prices would collapse. A more realistic valuation For us to all use and say, what are the actual value of our assets? Is to multiply that fictional value by the actual percentage that turns over. Now, if you do that, let's say it's 5% of the housing stock turns over every year, then rather than getting 2 million million, you get 100,000 million. 20 you know 20 120th the valuation mm. you see otherwise which is more realistic because that's what actually could be sold that's roughly the turnover in the annual turnover in the property market so if we did that we wouldn't ever we'd never believe that assets are going to make us positive net equity because that's just the amount of transactions that are being financed.
0: So presumably that would mean we'd borrow less to make those investments because the return is going to be less grand.
1: We'd stop we'd- seeing housing as investment to begin with.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. And we'd so we would save more. We'd, we'd put we'd look at alternative means. But 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 then that's housing. I mean does the same thing apply to uh, to other assets like yes, know, it investing in shares. Yeah.
1: This is the scary thing I about mean, again that a lot of shares uh if you go to a broker and say you want to buy uh um, buy some shares. Um, don't you know, it might take two minutes before they suggest, Haven't really got enough capital here. Why don't you take out a margin loan with us and you mm. can get you wonderful know, gearing out of your out of your property? You, you, know, you put down a um, hundred thousand and if we and back in the old days and back when Irving Fisher went bankrupt, uh, the margin loan ratio was ten percent. Um, so let's use that because that's what caused the, the, the great, that's what really made the Great Depression great was the widespread use of marginal loans by most of the uh, largest slab of the public, including ultimately in that, uh, how do you pronounce it, apocryphal a st- 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 Apocryphal? <laughs> what? I can never get. What? As, yeah. in, as in predicting the future? Yeah. Yeah, just say predicting um, the future. It's a lot easier. T- <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, when when I think Rockefeller hopped Apocryphal. into it, and the, bill, uh, it yeah, and, the, and the bill boy was telling him uh, which shares to invest in, he said, when the bill boy tells you what shares to buy, it's time to get out of the market. Um, well, at that stage, most people that take, uh, who are in the market are taking out a margin loan, and that margin loan is predicated on that and share prices always rise. Yeah. And what you do doing is so that's taking everything Fisher's case because this is literally what he did. If we, if we adjust the amount of money he was using uh, to Year two thousand dollars. Then he had ten million that he put into the stock market, because he actually became quite wealthy by selling his invention of a Rolodex, because uh, he was a tinkerer as well as a professor of economics. Uh, he invented the the That was the iPad of the the time. Sold it to the Rand Corporation. Made for a substantial amount of money, plus shares in Rand, so he's on the board of of Rand and a number of other corporations, and he had ten million in the stock market, which he had put on margin. So he had a hundred million worth of shares. Now, the danger about a margin loan, as opposed to a mortgage, mortgages are dangerous enough, but with margin loan, you are required to maintain the value of the portfolio. So if yeah. you put in ten million take out a 90% margin line, you've got $100 million worth of shares. If those shares go up by $10 million, then you double the money you've put in minus your servicing cost on the margin debt. That's what attracts people in. Yeah. If they go down by 10%... You owe money you haven't they- got. You've, got, you've, you've gone from a portfolio worth 100 million yeah. to a portfolio worth 90 million and the, the share according to the margin contract, the broker is quite entitled to ring you up and say, excuse me, your uh, level's fallen below, you have to put an extra 10 million yeah. in. Mm. If you haven't got that 10 million they'll sell your children. Yeah. There's no limits to the amount of money the margin... So it's um- all
0: this telling us that our mum and dads were right, that we should, because, um, you know, this this thinking that we are going to borrow to invest rather than save, mum and dad were right, weren't they? I mean, they, the old days where we were said, yes, save for a rainy day, which people don't think of now, uh, you know. Well, the, 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 yeah. and, and in fact, you know, there's a bit of research showing that uh, basically I think it's it's one in four uh, households in the, in the UK... Um, Don't actually, no, no, here we are. It's from Choice last year, and it's Australia. Uh, Yeah, one in four Australians say they couldn't raise $3,000 if there was an emergency and they needed that money drastically. Uh, uh, You know, so we don't have that liquidity. Uh, Any anymore, because we haven't been saving, we haven't been putting money in bank accounts. And perhaps, and just, you know, another angle to think about as well, you know, maybe part of that is, and we mentioned that, you know, it's because it's our money we're putting into banks, which feels less secure than borrowing from the banks. Just think back to the whole situation in Cyprus, just after the, uh, you know, the global financial crisis, anyone who had more than 100,000 euros sitting in the bank, the the, the bank would, you know, we're grabbing a significant chunk of that uh, to try and pacify the EU, basically. So, you know,
1: savings aren't secure necessarily. Well, that's one, of the, that's one of the worst decisions ever made by the European Union to do that. And that's really, believe me, that's that's a stiff field. That's a stiff field. Um, but yeah, if you look back to what our parents were doing, not only were they... Um, being frugal, so you you'd had lay in those days rather than having credit cards, so you'd be putting money, and I vividly remember my mother going through this for some item she wanted to buy, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd uh, put a deposit down of maybe 5% of the purchase price, and every week you'd go up and pay an extra 5%, and 20 weeks later you'd get whatever you were buying. Mm. These days it's all straight onto the credit card. But not only were they doing that, um, that frugality, uh, back in uh, you know the, the pre, uh, pre-bubble world we live in, they were also doing it with a money supply, which was much more determined by government money creation than it was by other banks. And this can this, this jump out of the little mindset I had of a, a pure credit market, pre-credit economy, and now imagine one with the government sector where the government creates money by deficit spending and financing that by purchasing from the central bank. That means there's a large amount of cash in the economy because when you get a payment from the bank, uh, from from, a, from if you get a loan from a bank, the loan, the, the the money you get in your bank account is precisely matched by the loan you owe to the bank. So you have no change in your net financial assets. That's why we go and then use that money to gamble and try to drive it at the price level. But if you have the government creating large amounts of money and you put that in your savings account, uh, that when the money is created and given to you, whether it's through you know, the government buying you services off you or you're getting a welfare check or... Um, or some form of social security benefit and so on, uh, that money doesn't come with an obligation to pay it back. There's no debt to the government for you individually. So the amount of money that can be, uh, the the amount of money has been generated by, government activity coming with zero uh, liability for the an individual and a positive asset value, which means we can all be in positive equity. Mm. And this is why when I come back to saying when you look at the, the wet dream of the libertarians, they haven't thought through the situation that their wet dream means the nightmare that everybody is not a bank is in negative equity. Now, that is what drives a lot of the weird behaviour we saw in the 18, 1800s, particularly in America, with booms and busts every 10 to 15 years that regularity after the um, financial, after the Great Depression, with the growth in the scale of the Federal Reserve and uh, the growth in government spending as well. Government spending in the the USA went from roughly 5% of GDP to roughly 30% through the experience of both the Great Depression and the Second World War. That generated a large amount of, of, of government money in circulation without the negative equity. So everybody was actually in positive equity. And if you added up your accounts, assets minus liabilities, most of the non-bank sector would find they had positive equity because most of that money was being created by the government turning up in the bank accounts without a liability match to it. They could have positive equity, and so could the banking sector. But so on that, yeah.
0: Th- when I'm living frugally, though, those days when we live frugally, I mean, unless I was sticking the money under a mattress, the money wasn't out of circulation, was it?
1: It was circulating as well, and this is the other thinking about the world we're in right now, and I'm going to go to one of my favourite stats, uh, which is not a stat, debt stat. It's a, it's, a, it's a velocity of money stat. Mm. This is the uh, money of zero maturity stat uh, maintained by the Federal Reserve. And when you look back at the rate the rate at which money turned over, in the it's, it's, it only starts in about 1959. So it's, it doesn't go right back to when you're talking about... Well, that's our, enough you, yeah, my, I, I was six then. Okay? So it's what my parents were doing when I was six years old. Um that, that stage, the velocity of money—money, money, money in the economy—turned over roughly one point eight times per per year. So, if you had, let's say, a billion dollars worth of money, that would support one point eight billion dollars worth of GDP. Yeah. Now, it, it remained flat at that level right through the, the end of nineteen sixty-five, and then it started to rise. And this, to me, was the beginning of the breakdown of the so-called—it's not the Keynesian era; it was the, it was the Samuelsonian and Hicksian era. Of economic policy, but it was there was a there was a boom, as you you, you might remember, uh, from the mid '60s on to 1973, and that boom drove up because inflation was rising. There was also an increase in the velocity of circulation of money. So by the time we hit uh, 1974, which was the I think that's what that's what I record as the beginning of the 1973-74 is my um, defining moment when we moved from a a financially robust society to a financially fragile society. Mm. Minsky actually chose 69, I think, the end of 73, beginning of 74 is a better date. But we, oh, were, sa- day- but we were
0: saving yeah. more, though, weren't we? Because interest rates were were high. There was the incentive to to save in the, in those days. And you're saying that... And the- in fact, no, in, in fact,
1: what you see is an incentive to spend because of the rate of inflation. Oh, I Because okay. yeah. I say, what you had, as I said, back in the in the 60s... But we also had
0: high interest rates, didn't we?
1: Yeah, well, the interest rates are going up to try to break the back of inflation, but most of that time interest rates were effectively negative in real terms. Mm. So you had real, and this is what defined the growth of the neoclassical school because from their point of view, this was the breakdown of the Keynesian philosophy. Uh, what they knew of Keynes was the textbooks that they read, of course, which Samuelson wrote, uh, but that was their vision. And that's when the, the whole... Uh, dominance of the neoclassical school began but if you look at what happened to the velocity of circulation money it kept on rising during that period of high interest high inflation so it went from 1.1.8 times turnover roughly which you can regard as the pre financialization stage mm. of society minsky's state was is pretty useful that's when it started to trend up so it started trending up from 1.7 to 1.9 and by the time we got to uh, 1968. It was turning over twice. But could it also and, be the cause of the inflation?
0: I mean, the fact that we've got uh, m- money t- ticking over faster, so in effect, there's more money. Uh, you know, it's it, it, more money uh, uh, as a supply. I mean, couldn't that be the reason for the inflation?
1: Well, the real the real reason I think was increasing bargaining power of workers, because you had at that stage high employment globally. Uh, Australia in particular an outrageous, outstanding example of high employment policies with unemployment rate of one and a half percent being the average, and anything above two it was a crisis. Um, These days they'd be throwing a party if they ever hit two. Um, but but the, so I think the wage press, the wage pressure was driving up prices overall. You also had, of course, OPEC. Turning OPEC began in seventy, so what seventy three, seventy four. Um, so that was there's lots of factors driving up the price level. But the, menti- but you finally,
0: yeah. the mentality in those days, though, it was still wasn't it that we, we you know we are going to save you know we're going to we're going to try and save as much as we can. It wasn't this idea that we're going to borrow to, to invest. When we started to borrow to invest, that's when we saw that the velocity of money really did start to slow down. So does that mean saying, save? Does yeah. that mean can we draw a conclusion that if you're gonna, if you're saving that, that actually helps the the velocity of money?
1: Um, it slows it. It slows the velocity of money circulation down, uh, because and this is the other point. When you save, you don't create any money. Yeah. This is the the, the Swabian house, housewife housewife probably making in Berlin. Um, in a couple of weeks' time, so I can and understand. Is- I
0: can understand the theory of that, but you're yeah. saying when we were, sa- you know, but when you were young and when I was young, which obviously are mm-hmm. two completely different generations, it's a long time ago. Yeah, and yeah. one or two generations in the middle there as well. The uh, the um, when you know when we were saving, uh, we we were seeing the velocity of money higher. I mean, it may, may be coincidental, but I mean, it doesn't mean one leads to the other. But now we are saving less and we're investing more and we're borrowing more. We're seeing that velocity of money decreasing, which seems counterintuitive, doesn't it?
1: Well, let's see. What actually is going on is because you become, again, you mentioned the people who can't, like the Australia survey, one in, one in four couldn't raise $2,000. What you do as a result of that is you spend even more slowly. Mm. Right. So the, and this is the classic story, and this is why Keynes talked so much about the, the fallacy of composition. What works at the individual level can be disastrous at the collective level. So the, the, my classic example is the Titanic. Um, if, you, if you want to go to survive the Titanic, you jump into a, a life raft. If you all jump into the life raft, the life raft sinks faster than the Titanic. Um, so you, you have to have the systemic capability to handle uh, the, that change. And by definition... Uh, you know, once you've hit the iceberg, the systemic capacity is gone, gone if you haven't already built enough life rafts on on the vessel. And that is a situation we find ourselves economically because we are not providing the money from the government point of view without coming with the – so you don't get money coming as an asset without a liability. Everybody's trying to drive up the valuation of the assets they have by borrowing from banks and, and then leveraging up the high price of assets through that process – which then means when you make your price times quantity of assets outstanding, calculation, whoopee-doo, we all find ourselves in positive equity, and that, of course, because, it, because it's been driven by the rising level of debt, it comes crashing down in experiences like the 2008 crisis.
0: Now, Liam Fox, who uh, is the Secretary of State for International Trade, he was the Defence Minister when he, he said this. This was about five years ago, so I'm talking outside his portfolio. He said the, the government should reduce stamp duty and taxes on banking ca- bank accounts so that we created a savings investment culture.
1: Is he a bit confused? Well, for a start, he's got it wrong. As you said, savings investment culture. That's yeah. neoclassical. classically. Yeah. You've got to save before you can invest. It's the other which way is around. Not, which is
0: not happening I, I, in no, any no, case. You,
1: you want to finance investment, and that's what hasn't been happening. We've certainly had some investment. Uh, you know, did we, with the, the, This whole bubble began back in 92 and 93 with the telecommunications bubble taking off, and that's one of the creative sides of, uh, of financing, which, which Sean Pater spoke a great deal about. Uh, that you want to provide capital to entrepreneurs who wouldn't otherwise have money, and that's supposed to be the role of the banking sector and also the financial, financial markets. And they were doing that effectively. So there was investment going on. But if you look at the level of investment compared to what it was back in the 50s, then the proportion of GDP that's going into investment, certainly in the UK, is far, far lower now than it was back then. And you're not getting the financing in the very first instance to enable that investment to occur. But if you want to buy a house... We've got some money for you, but
0: wouldn't the world be a better place if it was? You know, the place that our mum and dad described, where you know you've got to you've got to save money for a rainy day, and that money you can use as an investment once you've saved it, rather than the way that we are working, which is where we are we are borrowing to invest, and uh, and you know all the problems that you've created there. So Liam Fox might Fox might be wrong, but it's a it's a better place for the world to be, isn't it?
1: Well, there's another better place, and this is the one that I. The, it comes down to the nature of money itself, because the, the tendency, the desire to hoard money, as Keynes policy you, you you don't hoard it in terms of taking it out of circulation necessarily, but you spend it more slowly. So the, desire, the individual desire to have more money in your bank account means you spend more slowly, which means the aggregate GDP falls. Mm. And this is one of the traps of thinking at the individual level and applying it to the aggregate. Your attempt to save money, unless money is being created in the aggregate, will actually reduce GDP without increasing the actual aggregate stock of savings at all. But that's it the very rich
0: the saving, isn't it? Yeah. That's, the, yeah. that's the very rich. That's the people who say, well, I'm going to hoard money so I so I stay ahead. So I've got that advantage over everybody mm. else. So I'm going to be right mm. for the rest of my life. That's diff- yeah. that's different from uh, Mr. and Mrs. Average uh, just saving a bit from their weekly pay packet.
1: That it, that it is. But um, – but at the same time, it's, it's been both cases, but more so with the wealthy, you're slowing down the circulation of money and effectively making money less productive. Mm. So one of the most interesting experiments in history was called the Wargel experiment when a small town in Austria put into effect the monetary ideas of Silvio Gazelle. And Gazelle's idea was that money should actually depreciate because he said the whole hassle, and this is what we're yeah. talking about here, is that you actually – if you want money to be effective, you want it to be turned over, you don't want people hoarding and not spending and slowing down unless you're creating large amounts of money by things like you know, government spending, uh, then you want the money to be turning over. So his system was to create money which depreciated unless it was spent. Yeah. So if you live in your bank account, it, it, his idea was to attach, attach scripts to, um, uh, to, to to notes, so when a, a script, you had to attach a, a little stamp to a note to maintain its value and you'd only do that if you sold it to somebody else. So the transactions demand was extremely high and Wargel, uh, the, the mayor of Wargel, and I've just seen a, there's an excellent German movie on this front, by the way, that friends of mine translated parts for me so I could understand the dialogue. Um, it, that town went from being unemployed and unemployed at the rate of 25%. Down to effectively zero because the Wargall, a currency, which was valid in the municipality, uh, was being used by people. That, you know, the baker would get the, uh, the the dressmaker to make a dress. The dressmaker would get a house built, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. And it was actually in full employment. And it was finally shut down by the Austrian government, and of course the, the final scene of the movie, which is quite quite realistic though, of course done in a cinematic way, was as the as the the broken mayor. Uh, who died shortly afterwards of cancer, I believe, walked through the, a, a square. Uh, the times continued on, and the uh, the flags changed, and they were replaced by swastikas.
0: Mm. Yeah, not a happy so, time. But I, I, happy I, time. I wonder. In fact, you know, we're seeing a bit of that in the UK right now. That maybe you know some of the some of the growth and spending we've been seeing over the last year or two is because people you know being told so many times the pound is going to be devalued, it's going to be worth less, they're going to have less spending power, um, and uh, you know, and perhaps that's that that's part and parcel of, of all of this. But that idea of a of a currency losing you know losing its worth, being able to buy less with it, so you want to spend that money quickly, that doesn't help the uh, you know one in four. Australians who don't have any emergency backup. And surely it would also encourage people to say, well, you know, this money, if I hang on to it, it's going to lose value. Uh, I'd be better off putting
1: that money into assets. That's, again, why you want to have you know, effectively a full employment regime when nobody feels that they have that fear of becoming unemployed and being un- unable to pay their debts. And this is the, the the great problem that we have when we have this obsession with uh, in, in controlling the rate of inflation as the first target, and using unemployment to do it. To one reason I'm in favour of the idea of a job guarantee. Yeah. That you shouldn't you shouldn't face the terror of being unable to survive if you lose your job. Yeah, that should be and the job this, of welfare. Yeah, and that's and that's that is the situation for people who don't own capital. Mm. So you you want to have some way saying even if I. Even if I uh, lose my job, my income will fall, but I won't be unable to pay my absolute basic expenses. Now, if you have that terror, then, of course, that's going to encourage people to both hoard, to spend more slowly, which is, again, going against what you want to happen in a capitalist economy, leaving out the global warming side of things, but you you want to have the turnover being rapid. And you also have them being inclined to go and speculate because that's the only way to apparently get positive equity. Now, they lead to crises. And that's the mindset we've got ourselves in. Uh, The consequences of the mindset we've got ourselves in.
0: So mum and dad were wrong. Uh, We shouldn't save rather than spend. But similarly, we've got it wrong. We shouldn't borrow to invest. We should just be taking our pay packet and buying stuff with it. And that's going to be the best outcome for the economy. Is that what you're saying?
1: effectively, um, but also you, you, you wanna, what you want to have is, is effective money creation that doesn't come with a debt attached to it to the individual who receives it, which is the case when there's government money creation. It doesn't happen when you have private banks alone. So, and also the idea would be to create that stuff. Again, Gazelle's idea of having a monetary system which has depreciation built in. Now, there's no bloody way in the world you could bring it into existence here, but I think there's one guy who could give it a try. Who's that? Elon Musk on the moon, on, on Mars. Right. One of yeah. these. We, got, they're going to need a monetary system one day we, and we, they could design it yeah, you haven't taken anybody. A, you haven't
0: yeah. taken us Mars for a long time. It's been I just- know, but I thought I'd
1: take it there for a bit of a break. It's snowing outside, so it's making me think of astronomical events for some reason. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's the, um, the, you, if you could design a money system from the outset, then that's what you do because mm. what you want to have is people relying upon income. They don't have to worry about having a buffer because they know they're going to have an income. And they're spending the income they're earning, and that money is turning over rapidly, generating large amounts of income, because if you hang on to it, it depreciates. That would be a totally different world, and I think a better one than the one we live in.
0: Right, until we address the the question of energy, which is a, an, another another thing to throw into the mix. But we won't do that today. Look, uh, perhaps we will bring up the question of energy next time, though, because we're going to look at, uh, you know, what is the optimum population? We'll do that next time. Great to talk, Steve. Okay. Thank you, Matt. And then the uh, week after that, we're going to be fact-checking Friedman, uh, looking at Friedman's theories and where he went wrong precisely. And Nordhaus, the uh, Nobel Prize winner for economics this last year. Uh, He is supposedly a bit of a climate change champion, but we'll be looking at his climate model and pulling that apart as well. So lots to look forward to in coming weeks here on the Debunking Economics podcast. With Professor Steve Keane, I'm Phil Dobby. See you next time. Thanks for listening.